Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta thanking you. We have got some great topics ahead of us today. Uh, we're going doing our normal Thursday routine. We're going to take time to look over the Sunday Gospel reading, which is the very well-known parable of the talents. Peggy Stanton will be joining me. Also, Matthew Bunsen with us today, uh, wrapping up uh, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops annual fall assembly. Uh, there's some other topics, too. Uh, there's now an archbishop from Beijing that is the first to visit Hong Kong since the Chinese Revolution. It's actually a big deal, and uh, we'll see what we can read into it. Uh, I'm going to take a few minutes to remember Frank Borman, the Apollo 8 astronaut who broadcast uh, from the first chapter of Genesis. Um, he passed away on November 7th at the age of 95. But it's a, it's a fascinating story how that came about. His, in fact, his whole career uh, just sh- shows a remarkable man, and I want to share that with you. Also coming up uh, today's program, in the second hour... We're going to join by a church historian, Steve Weidenkopf. Steve has uh, <laughs> given us a, a topic which I think is especially appropriate right now. A lot of people look at the Catholic Church, a lot of Catholics look at the Catholic Church right now, and they think we're in turmoil, right? Uh, things are unstable. Well, Steve wants to make the point that nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil— Historically, easy to pick out these moments. But guess what? In the providence of God, they came, the church came out stronger than before. We're going to look at light from darkness. And I think this is a message that many of us want to hear today because I'm, I'm just stunned by the amount of uh, fear and suspicion that I see out there. So we're going to take a look at uh, some historical precedents. Also, um, we've got U.S. bishops has now voted to advance the canonization cause of Isaac Hecker. Isaac Hecker, one of the great American evangelists, Catholic. So we're going to have a good time with that as well. But first, let's get to today's headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, November 16th. It's the Feast of St. Gertrude the Great. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. The war between Israel and Hamas is raging on. Israeli forces stormed Gaza's main hospital and said they found weapons and a laptop with a photo of a kidnapped Israeli soldier on it. This comes as President Biden said he doesn't believe the war would end until there's a two-state solution. A verdict has been reached in the trial of the man accused of attacking the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. David DePape faces life behind bars if convicted on federal charges. DePape could be seen on police video attacking Paul Pelosi inside his home last year. 
The jury began deliberating Wednesday. Jewish students are suing New York University over anti-Semitism on campus. A lawsuit filed by three Jewish NYU students this week claims the university has failed to protect students from egregious anti-Semitism that has gotten worse since the Hamas terror attack on Israel on October 7th. According to the lawsuit, the school's Jewish population has been harassed and feeling under siege as they've been confronted with chants of Hitler was right. An NYU spokesperson said the university looks forward to challenging what the school called the lawsuit's one-sided narrative. And the Oakland A's are one step closer to moving to Las Vegas. MLB owners unanimously approved the franchise's relocation to Nevada on Thursday. The team now needs to complete other steps like securing funding for a stadium before it can officially become Las Vegas' fourth major professional sports club. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, uh, as he's wrapped up his time in Baltimore at the uh, Fall Conference. Uh, Fall Assembly of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Matthew serves as Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News and is also a Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Um, Matthew, good to have you back. Thanks. Oh, very good to be with you. Well, let's... Uh, I know that today the, uh, in Baltimore they had closed sessions. I, is that true? That's correct. Yeah. But let's, let's clarify a few things. Did the bishops keep abortion... Uh, listed as our preeminent priority in the faithful citizenship document. They did. Okay. And uh, it's notable because, well, on a, on a number of fronts, um, as uh, anyone who follows the, the work of the conference uh, would remember the 2019 back and forth uh, about faithful citizenship, uh, forming consciences for faithful citizenship, which is the bishop's document uh, on elections, uh, basically giving advice, counsel to Catholics on how to form their consciences. As they always say, they don't tell any Catholic who to vote for or who to vote against. Uh, these are the, the principles, though, as a Catholic you should look at. And there was the, the famous uh, back and forth from the floor uh, between then Bishop, now Cardinal, uh, Robert McElroy of San Diego, and Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, who was then vice president of the conference, uh, on this very question about whether or not abortion should remain, as far as the bishop's document was concerned, uh, preeminent uh, and listed as such. And the bishops, uh, as a body, voted yes, that it, it still is. And this document is significant because it keeps the document whole. It doesn't make any revisions. Those may come. We can talk about that. But it uses a, a letter, an introductory note, uh, and in that introductory note, they stress again that abortion is and must remain uh, the preeminent issue of our time. And then they explain why, and, and not the least of which is that there are a million uh, children lost to abortion every year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, numerically, it's just stunning. And then it's also the logic of it. We were all preborn children at one time, so every abortion kills one of my kind. And... Um, it cheapens our sense of uh, collective uh, um, worth. I, uh, so I'm glad to see that they continue it. Uh, yeah, and, and one thing, too, about it, um, 
the bishops themselves, uh, in their introductory note, uh, make the point uh, that uh, when it, it is the grave threat to the dignity of the human person. Yeah. And they then do go on to enumerate other threats. Mm -hmm. uh, they list euthanasia, human trafficking, uh, transgender, uh, terrorism, war, racism, and climate change. Now, the, the fight has been for a number of years now uh, that uh, this document, according to some uh, a small group of bishops at, at the conference, uh, that it does not, to borrow the phrase, have the smell of Francesco. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they assert that, uh, for example, climate change should be the most preeminent issue of our time. And there are some who say that. Uh, the, the bishops, however, in this gathering voted, I think it was 225 to 11, uh, to advance this introductory note, uh, along with five bulletin inserts and various videos, uh, to help voters as we head now into what is going to be the very complicated uh, 2024 election cycle. Yeah. Uh, and I think there is an awareness, too, that following this election cycle, the bishops are going to revisit the question of revising the whole document. Uh, but now isn't the time to do it because they simply don't have the time, and I don't think they want to have the fight. Yeah, yeah. That's just, they've been talking about revising this document for a long time. So yes, uh, yeah. We'll see. I, I, I don't know exactly how what would account for. Um, you know, no matter how they're going to have a fight about it eventually. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't see how you avoid that. Right. And there's now, nothing wrong with having a fight about it either. I mean, no. Now, it's likely, as we have seen over the last few years, in, in the wake of the very public uh, disagreements that they had over the issue of Eucharistic coherence, uh, the, the fight is not likely to be on the floor of a, of a session that's being streamed publicly. Right. Uh, right. They have been leaning more and more into these executive sessions. So, like this time, they started on Monday uh, behind closed doors. They had public sessions on Tuesday and Wednesday and then finished up, as is the usual custom, with an executive session today. Uh, so they've added an extra day, and that some of that is a byproduct of trying to get themselves together uh, on this whole issue of Eucharistic coherence that we've seen over the last few years. And I think it's a pattern now that they've established, and they're likely to stay with it, because it does allow them to have very frank and open discussions mm -hmm. amongst themselves mm -hmm. uh, and to settle certain matters before uh, they have their public sessions. Now, yeah. some would say that's not very transparent. The counter-argument is that, yes, it actually does allow them to have these honest and frank conversations. Right, right. right. Uh, I saw a note that the U.S. bishops have voted to uh, advance the canonization cause of Isaac Hecker. Yes. This is... Um, this uh, I, this is a, I'm glad to hear this. This is one of the great American evangelists of the 19th century. Absolutely. And, and it's, he's one of those uh, candidates that it sometimes is a surprise. Oh, I thought his cause would have opened a while ago. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> In this case, um, and for, by a bit of background, it is customary now, but not required, uh, that an Episcopal conference of the nation in which a cause is being advanced uh, should weigh in and give its uh, approbation, its support uh, to a cause. And I think uh, we've seen this pattern now. We had the Shreveport martyrs. We've had a few other uh, various causes brought before the body. Uh, and it's a helpful 
a vote of confidence in a cause. And this one, I think, was uh, pretty popular among the bishops. Uh, you know, we can talk in a second about uh, the, the call for John Henry Newman to be a doctor of the church, yeah, which I find I also that. very Ooh. interesting. But in the case of Hecker, uh, he... His cause was open, I think, in 2008, so he's already a servant of God. But I think now they're in the position uh, where the the Paulists in, in the Archdiocese of New York uh, pushing this cause, um, and now they want to try to get greater word and greater support from uh, the emerit, the church in the United States. And I was really quite struck by uh, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, the Archbishop of New York, his comments about Hecker. He is, after all, uh, a, in his own right, uh, a, a brilliant church historian. Yep, that's right. So he's certainly qualified to talk about it. But at the end of the day, I think about 230 bishops uh, voted in favor of it. Seven, for whatever reason, voted no, and then there were two abstentions. So it's clearly uh, something that the bishops want to say. But Dolan's great use of the the phrase that he used is classic American story because mm-hmm. because Hecker is. He, he, this, what I love about about him is he comes in. He's a son of German immigrants. Um, <clears throat> he he is a, a, a very uh, engaged uh, the, the evangelist presentation of the gospels. Uh, he's also standing up for exploited immigrants in New York City. Um, you know, so he, he and his brothers join um, the a faction of the New York Democratic Party known as, as the Loco Focos. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They're trying to achieve political change. And, um, you know, that faction uh, failed. And so he began to think seriously about how do you uh, find hope in a world like this? Right. And his relationship with God grew. Uh, and and he's, he weaves his way through uh, so much of the culture of the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, names that are probably forgotten by many today. Orestes uh, Bronson, Orestes for example. Bronson, yeah. Uh, this, this brilliant Anglican who I think eventually became Catholic. Yes, he did. Uh, and these famous names of the archbishops of, uh, of New York, uh, Archbishop John McCluskey in particular comes to mind, uh, and then finds himself in Rome. Uh, and this this creation of this new congregation, but it was sort of the genius of of the church, especially in the nineteenth century, to try to come to grips with what was needed in the time mm-hmm. and not to waste the talents of somebody like Father Hecker, uh, but to give him that space uh, to create a new congregation well I think this is again I, I think it's a great story. And again, founded the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle. As you just pointed out, the Paulist Fathers, this was again uh, American. Uh, we'll see. I hope this stays in front of people. I mean, I hope, I hope those who are promoting the cause will keep it pu- very public. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, I think this is a name that's not familiar to most American Catholics. Now, John Henry Newman, uh, as a doctor of the church, I love that. Yes, me too. That uh, I, I joked uh, on EWTN News Nightly last night that um, uh, it is a statement in some ways of how calm the bishops' meeting was, that uh, perhaps the most exciting news of the, of, the, of the week coming out of the USCCB meeting was this massive declaration by the bishops that uh, petitioning Pope Francis to name John Henry Newman a doctor of the church. <laughs> that this, this is... Really quite exciting. 
this is a similar to what uh, the U.S. bishops have done a few times over the years. Uh, there was a body vote uh, asking, uh, I think it was Pope Benedict at the time, to name John of Avila a doctor of the church, yeah. which subsequently happened. Uh, in 2019, uh, the U.S. bishops also petitioned uh, Pope Francis to name Irenaeus of Lyon a, a doctor of the church, which subsequently happened in about two years after that. So the hope is that this will spur things forward. The actual impetus for this was a request from the English and Wales Bishops' Conference uh, to garner international support uh, for this petition. We'll have to see. I mean, John Henry Newman, uh, as uh, Bishop Robert Barron in his comments yesterday during the discussion among the bishops, made the point that he is a bridge, that there are Catholics on the left and Catholics on the right who can actually come together yeah. on Newman because he has so much to offer. Yes. And he does fulfill, at this point, arguably, two of the, the major requirements to become a doctor of the church. The first is he's a saint. He was canonized in 2019. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is the eminence of his teaching. I don't think there's anyone who would disagree right. on the scope, scale, and depth Yeah of John Henry Newman's writings and his influence theologically. Yeah. I loved him before I was Catholic, and yes. uh, I just thought this was a brilliant man. He had such spiritual insight. He was theologically... Uh, uh, he had he, he, cohesion. You could see he, his worldview was solid, um, and I, he was a great stylist, too, an English sty pro-stylist. Yes. You don't see that very often anymore. It's a joy to read him. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Hold it there, Matthew. We've got to take a break. We'll continue. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, we're taking a look at uh, what's been going on around the church all over the world. And uh, got some interesting uh, doctrinal issues that have come up this week about transsexual baptisms and Catholics and Freemasons. So stay with us. Father Benedict Groeschel. Ah, oh, I love reverence. Wherever I go in the world, I usually go to visit the religious buildings. And no matter what I see, I see reverence. Awe. I've been in temples and mosques where I saw more reverence and awe of God than I see in Christian churches, even sometimes in Catholic churches. Oh, yes. Let me say it. When I was a boy, Catholics were much more reverent and respectful in church. You never, ever spoke in church. I was a young priest. A man had a heart attack at the beginning of Mass. I stopped the Mass. We prayed for the man while the police were coming, the ambulance. They removed him from the church. He didn't die. Not one word was spoken. The police officers and the ambulance attendants who came whispered, respect. I wish it were true today. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. What does the Ninth Commandment forbid? The Catholic Catechism says the Ninth Commandment warns against carnal concupiscence, sins against the flesh. What is concupiscence? It is the consequence of original sin. Though baptism purifies the soul of all sin, it does not remove our tendency toward sin. In this rebellion of the flesh against the spirit, as defined by St. Paul, we must develop purity of heart the desire always to do the will of God, especially in the area of charity and chastity. Purity requires modesty. Modesty protects the intimate center of a person. It refuses to unveil what should be hidden. Modesty guides how you look at others and behave toward them. 
it should dictate one's choice of clothing so as not to exploit or tempt another. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. Have you ever been so grief-stricken and so heart-sick that you can't see God? You can't see God in the tragedy. You can't see God in that cross. You can't see God in that sick. Why? You're enveloped in that grief. You're enveloped in fear. And God is out the window. You don't see him standing right next to you. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at the church stories around the world. One story uh, that everybody is aware of is uh, the uh, president of China, Xi Jinping, meeting with Joseph Biden, our president, in San Francisco. But what they don't know is that the Archbishop of Beijing is visiting Hong Kong this week. This is a historic visit, and uh, I was glad to hear of it. What can you tell me about it? Well, that's right. This is uh, a fairly remarkable development uh, because this is, uh, as I think you noted, uh, that the first time that uh, the Archbishop of Beijing has visited Hong Kong since basically China took was taken over by the Chinese Communist Party mm-hmm. and broke uh, relations, formal relations with the Vatican. And we're, we're talking about almost 70-plus years. Mm-hmm. So in this case, uh, Archbishop Li Shan, uh, who is uh, also the president of the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, which is the state-controlled uh, Catholic church in China, which, is, in other words, is the state-sanctioned right. uh, church. Now, sometimes that there's a misunderstanding about that, that somehow it is not everything that they do is not valid. Uh, so that there's a complicated history there. Uh, but he visited Hong Kong uh, at the invitation of the recently created Cardinal Stephen Chow. Uh, and it's a reflection of, of two things, I think. The, the first is that Cardinal Chow has proven 
in the time that he's been the Bishop of Hong Kong, very adroit diplomatically uh, in creating what he has himself described as a, a bridge uh, between Hong Kong and the mainland. Hmm. Now, let's remember that about 10% or so of the population of Hong Kong is Catholic. And so there is a, a strong Catholic presence historically in Hong Kong. Uh, it is obviously at great risk now. And the other aspect is, I think, a, a visit like this would not have been possible without at least the tacit awareness and approval of uh, the Chinese communist leaders, uh, who are obviously in very strict control of all religious life, in particular in the last years under uh, Premier Xi Jinping yeah. and his program of sinicization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, this is, this is true. Um, and I'm, I, was, I saw that... Uh, uh, Lee presented uh, Xiao with a stained glass image of the Venerable Matteo Ricci, yes. the famed missionary. Uh, <laughs> That's China. right. Yeah, it's one of one of our fascinating moments in in church history and the history of Catholic missions. Uh, well, that's right, and and it, it, there's a significance there uh, too because the idea of presenting uh, a, an image like this, Matteo Ricci, uh, a great voice, a great uh, missionary, uh, somebody who took this heroic trip to the Far East, but who would nevertheless, in this environment uh, of Chinese communist rule, would be seen as an invader, That's right. as a foreigner, uh, who would therefore be a, a diabolical threat uh, mm -hmm. to the homeland, to yeah. China itself. So a gesture like this means that there is this receptivity to that which is outside of what is traditionally called the Middle Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's always uh, a symbolism to a lot of this. Uh, what's significant, too, about Li is that um, he was ordained the Archbishop of Beijing back, I think, in 2007, but that was also with the approval of Pope Benedict XVI. Okay. So that's notable. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated situation there. I remember many, many years ago when I first became aware that there was a a state-sanctioned uh, church, and this is true with evangelical Protestants as well as Catholics, and that there's also a, uh, quote, underground church. It was always assumed that the underground church was always doing things right and that the state-sanctioned state church was doing everything, uh, well, they, they were masters of infidelity. Uh, <laughs> and it's not quite that simple. Uh, there are authentic believers in the state-sanctioned church and authentic vocations as well, as I understand it. Well, that's right. Uh, and none of uh, these discussions uh, can take place without recognizing as well the, the overshadowing of all of it uh, by the secret agreement uh, that exists between the Holy See and, yeah. and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, for what was the intention of it, it was not supposed to be a diplomatic agreement. It is not a kind of formal concordat. Uh, to use the, the traditional technical term. It's really designed to, to try to normalize or regularize uh, the ecclesiastical life in China. Mm. At least that's the stated goal. We've, we've never seen the terms. Right. We know that China right. itself has violated those on a, on a pretty regular and egregious basis. But uh, Pope Francis has made it clear that he plans to stick with uh, this agreement uh, where you have a process in place for the nomination of bishops. So a meeting of this type where you have the president of the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Church with 
what is now clearly the highest ranking, certainly because he's a cardinal and an active cardinal, with all due respect to Cardinal Zen, of course, who's emeritus. But Cardinal Chow is, in many ways, the voice for the Catholic Church in China. And I think this opens the door for some potentially very significant discussions. Did the U.S. bishops have any statements about how to follow up on the synod on synodality? Yes, so there was a, a pretty extensive conversation about it. Uh, I think it was on their first open day. Uh, and we heard, uh, for example, from uh, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, uh, mm-hmm. who was one of the participants. Uh, all of them agreed, uh, as to no surprise to anyone, that they thought that the experience of uh, the synod itself was a, a remarkable one for them. Uh, I think that the question that's been asked, and I think this is uh, key to uh, where the bishops are going from here, is what happens next? Yeah, yeah. What is exactly the plan coming out of the synod? Now, in fairness, and, and this is something that Bishop Daniel Flores, uh, the outgoing committee chair on doctrine, who is also part of a, a small committee that helped form some of the bigger work of the synod in Rome, when asked uh, by the Catholic News Agency, what's next? He was pretty straightforward. He said that, uh, well, we are still waiting uh, for some clarity on that from Rome. Uh, He expressed a desire for some sort of an executive summary of this final synthesis document that you and I have talked talked about probably more than anyone wants to hear. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he said that it it is a 41-page document, and it needs to be summarized so that it can be applied. Uh, But he did stress, again, that this is a month ago. Uh, that, that less than a month ago, that the Senate actually completed its its work in this phase. So let's see what happens in the, the coming months uh, as the next steps. Now, there's a lot that needs to happen on the local level, apparently. Uh, and I think great attention needs to be placed on what bishops are going to be doing uh, on that local level, especially once we get into the spring and we're looking at the prospect of another instrumentum laboris for what's supposed to happen in the fall with the, the concluding session of the Senate. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, Bishop Rhodes said during the November 14th press conference with with Flores, he said, you know, when you think about it being a 41-page document, how are we going to consult people? Are they going to read 41 pages? And this is what, from the beginning, this has always been a concern. Yes. Um, Well, it's hard to get people to read four pages. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) One other thing that uh, really jumped out uh, in this this gathering of the bishops, there was the presentation on uh, a document that was somewhat forgotten for a number of years, and and that was Encountering Christ in Harmony. Uh, That goes all the way back to 2018, and that was uh, focusing on pastoral care for Asian and Pacific Island Catholics. Hmm. Because this is increasingly important because they are the fastest-growing minority group of Catholics, but also of the general population in the United States. And they are at times overlooked. They're they're forgotten. Yeah. And so a very interesting presentation was given by Bishop Larry Silva of Honolulu, uh, who, of course, has uh, led uh, his flock through the terrible fires on the island of Maui. But uh, he talked about the different things that have been done in the intervening years since the implementation of this. And I think it's, it's worth just noting uh, that there really is an active program. Uh, and we love to talk about that they form these committees, they issue these documents, and nothing happens. Right. 
In this case, I think they were able to show things like certificates of ministry that are available to anyone. You can do it online. Uh, and how that is increasingly important uh, with the growing Asian Pacific Island population. We think often just of the West Coast, but in fact we're seeing growing populations uh, in Texas and elsewhere. Mm. And uh, it's a, a pastoral situation that, uh, again, we have this idea that nothing really ever is accomplished. Uh, in this case, it is, but they also recognize that a lot more progress needs to happen. Has to happen, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, there's a statement that um, the Holy See has reaffirmed that Catholics cannot be Freemasons. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. This is uh, under the heading of things that you didn't think needed to be reaffirmed. Right. Right. Uh, But I found this an especially interesting story because of two things. First, the the clarity of the document that came from, uh, that was signed by Pope Francis and the prefect for the Dicaster of the Doctrine of the Faith, the, the, again, newly minted Cardinal Victor Fernandez, uh, in clarifying what exactly is permitted. Uh, in this case, it was a responsum uh, to a dubium. Uh, so we, mm-hmm. we've been seeing a lot of these. Uh, we all have to bookmark the DDF homepage now uh, <laughs> because they're churning out these documents. But the other is I think that there's a value uh, in reiterating this at a time when so many people have either no idea what the Freemasons are or no idea what the Church actually teaches right. about the Freemasons because it, we have this image today where you can belong to everything. Uh, but there are very valid reasons why Catholics cannot belong to yeah. the movement yeah. of Freemasonry. Yeah, there's a real history here, and it's it's worth uh, it's worth looking. Uh, different countries' uh, membership in Freemasonry is more significant than others. Um, but uh, here in the United States, it was very significant, especially in the 18th century. Um, let me ask, jump to something else before we run out of time, though. Yeah. Transsexual baptism. Yes. What What is this? What's going on here? Well, what we have seen, uh, and this is another one of the responsa uh, resp- uh, from, uh, or the response in the, in the plural sense, to questions that have been asked about what's permitted by the church. And uh, it's, as we've been talking, a very complicated uh, situation. But essentially what has been reiterated is that it, is permissible, but under very specific circumstances. And you have to read the document in some ways to appreciate what exactly uh, is being said here. Uh, By, in particular, uh, again, we go back to the prefect for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, Cardinal Fernandez, uh, and essentially what he's saying is that for a child to be baptized there must be a well-founded hope that she or he will be educated in the catholic religion but they're basically opening the door without changing doctrine that's important uh, to this question hmm. well we'll come back and pick up pick it up another time yes uh, a I lot know, to unpack there yeah and i see some theologians are starting to weigh in on it too like our yes. friend uh, at Echeverria over at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. So Yes. All right, Matt, thanks so much for taking cool. time. And Great we'll, to be with you. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. 
That's realestateforlife.org. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York, flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of Scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Parents often complain that their kids either don't do their chores or don't do a good job with them. How can parents teach kids to do chores well? The easiest way to teach kids healthy attitudes toward chores is to create family work rituals where families do chores together. Daily family work rituals give parents and kids an opportunity to work side by side, learning good stewardship, responsibility, and teamwork. Family work rituals provide on-the-job training for chores so that when kids eventually get their own chores, they know what's expected of them and how to do them well. That's one reason family rituals for working together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and we are taking a look at this Sunday's Gospel reading. 
It's uh, from Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 14 and going through verse 30. And guiding us through will be our friend Peggy Stanton, author of From the White House to the White Cross. She's a dame of the Order of Malta and uh, has published uh, a book, The Daniel Dilemma, The Moral Man in the Public Arena, and most recently, um, The Order of Malta, Minutes with the Catechism, and her, her memoir, uh, from the White House to the White Cross is something really uh, you should get a hold of. We've got it available in the online bookstore there, so you can get it. Peggy, good to have you here. Thanks. Thank you, Al. Very good to be here. By the way, you know, there is another book that um, people don't realize. That I, the first book I ever wrote, co-authored, was called How to Help Your Child Eat Right. <laughs> Think about starting with mundane. Good heavens. <laughs> Well, when my daughter was uh, five or six years old, she never wanted to eat anything that was nutritious. (laughs) Everything was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so I asked my friend Tony Hatfield, who wrote cookbooks, I said, how about we do a cookbook uh, on nutrition? And, you know, there was... Everybody talks nutrition now, but they didn't then. Right, right. This is way back. How did it do? It did very, very well. We actually, we were actually on the Today Show and we were <laughs> demonstrating good. our little nutritious recipes. Now, you mentioned Hatfield related to Mark Hatfield. Yes, okay. yes, he was one of my very good friends. Ah, and, I didn't realize. Okay. Yeah. In fact, Mark and uh, um, Bill, Mark Hatfield and Bill Stanton, my husband, I can still remember them sitting around our dining room table. Having to, we sent out a request for recipes to all the ladies of moment in Washington, <laughs> and they were stuffing envelopes. Oh my! Very good, very good, good okay. guys. Okay. Yeah. Well, that 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 goes into trying to use your talents, <laughs> and that takes us to the uh, the gospel reading right. for today, the parable right. of the talents. And let right. me read um, again Matthew chapter twenty-five verses 14 to 30, and uh, I have the text right in front of me. Where is it? There it goes. Okay, I've got it. Here we go now. Jesus told his disciples this parable. A man going on a journey called in his servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Immediately, the one who received five talents went and traded with them and made another five. Likewise, the one who received two made another two. But the man who received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came forward, bringing the additional five. He said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've made five more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you are faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received two talents also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've made two more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you are faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you were a demanding person, harvesting where you did not plant and gathering where you did not scatter. 
So out of fear, I went off and buried your talent in the ground. Here it is back. His master said to him in reply, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I did not plant and gather where I did not scatter? Should you not then have put my money in the bank so that I could have got back with interest on my return? Now then, take the talent from him and give it to one with ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will grow rich. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And throw this useless servant into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Well, that's not a text you want to get up to for a Sunday morning. That is one tough, tough yeah. saying. It certainly Oof. is. <laughs> it certainly yeah. is. Well, I, I, you know, when I was young and, that, and first heard that, I thought Jesus was taking from the poor and giving to the rich. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, Why? Why would he do that? Yeah. Yeah. But um, this, uh, you know, my mother, um, this should be my mother's gospel because she was always preaching. Use the gifts God has given you. Um, and that finally kind of awakened me to the Lord's real message, which essentially echoed mothers, or mother, I should say mother echoed the Lord. It is sinful to waste one's talents, and if you don't use them, you're likely to lose them. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. Very <laughs> okay. true. Yeah. Um, so tell me, does the Catechism address this particular uh, parable? Well, it talks about the talents. Okay. Uh, he, um, it does, you know, in the beginning I did uh, quote the paragraphs that say that, that um, the Lord invites all to the feast of his kingdom, uh, but, the, but the invitation comes with cost and that we have to make a radical choice if we want to enter the feast. We must give everything and words aren't enough. Deeds are required. What use have we made of the talents we have received? Um, and I, I just made a note of because the Catechism, again, in 1720, uh, paragraph 1720, uh, just mentions uh, the different names of the kingdom the coming of the kingdom, the vision of God, entering into the joy of the Lord entering into God's rest, and then, of course, the one that's used in this gospel, enter into your master's joy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, the paragraph 1936, um, neither of which were um, cited by the Didache Bible, which I use as a, a reference because they, they base all their commentary on the catechism, mm-hmm. and they and they cite these, but they didn't. So I just looked into the catechism to see if they had anything on the talents, and they did. And paragraph 1936 says, On coming into the world, man is not equipped with everything he needs for developing his bodily and spiritual life. He needs others. Uh, differences tied to age, physical abilities, intellectual or moral aptitude, the benefits derived from social commerce and the distribution of wealth. The talents are not distributed equally, the mm-hmm. paragraph says. And then it it's more enlightening in paragraph 1937, which says, 
these differences belong to God's plan, who yeah. wills that each receive. I think these are very interesting points that maybe we wouldn't um, focus so much on. We're, we're kind of focused on, on uh, the Lord being severe but uh, in his gift of talents. But this, I think, is, is uh, something we need to contemplate. Uh, he, God wills that each receive what he needs from others and that those endowed with particular talents share the benefits with those who need them. These differences encourage and often oblige persons to practice generosity, kindness, and sharing of goods. They foster the mutual enrichment of cultures. Uh, and then the Catechism included this quote directly from our Lord speaking to St. Catherine of Siena. Mm. And this is the Lord speaking. I distribute the virtues quite diversely. I do not give all of them to each person, but some to one, some to others. I shall give principally charity to one, justice to another, humility to this one, a living faith to that one. And so I have given many gifts and graces, both spiritual and temporal, with such diversity that I have not given everything to one single person, hmm. so that you may be constrained to practice charity towards one another. I have willed that one should need another and that all should be my ministers in distributing the graces and gifts they have received from me. Interesting. I, I, yeah, I think that's... So, so the, the, the fellow who gets one talent here is actually has a posture probably of resentment. Um, he right. Di he didn't get what the others got. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to develop it. Uh, I didn't get what I thought I deserved. I wasn't distributed the graces and gifts. Mm -hmm. that I thought I should have. And mm -hmm. so, and of course, that kind of follows, too, with the fact that he seems to insult, <laughs> insult yeah. his master, Yeah, uh, you know. Um, so maybe, maybe that's what we're dealing with there. We're dealing with an underlying attitude of... Resentment. Yeah, huh? and an unwillingness to accept God's sovereign distribution of his gifts. Mm -hmm. um, which, mm -hmm. again, in 1 Corinthians, uh, where St. Paul talks about, in chapters 12 through 14, where he talks about the distribution of the gifts, mm -hmm. it's very clear that the Holy Spirit distributes what we call, what we call spiritual gifts mm -hmm. uh, by his own sovereign will. Right, know, right. We don't apply for them. You know, I mean, he, he gives yeah, them right. We can't wishes. send in it. Yeah, I'd like to request. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think, um, and, and then uh, I think I, uh, uh, John Berksma, our, our theologian, uh, points out that the um, third servant, as it, you pointed out, uh, not only insulted the master, but as he tried to weasel out of responsibility for making no money, he <laughs> lied. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he yeah. was so interested in preserving the little he had for fear of his greedy master, he could have invested the money in the bank and at least earned some interest. Yes. He, was, <laughs> he really... But Bergsman likes the second servant. Uh, I love what he says here, which is the character most applicable to most of us mediocre types <laughs> <laughs> who fill the pews on Sunday to hear these readings. We don't reject the Lord like the third servant. 
Yet neither are we the celebrity Christians, <laughs> the living saints who seem to have an abundance of gifts, both natural and supernatural. We are just rather ordinary. I remember thinking as I was reading of that, I was thinking, reading that, I was immediately thinking of John Paul. <laughs> For the second, I, um, yes, yeah, who seems so gifted. The second servant is not jealous. Uh, Bergsman says no, he's got a good. Servant. Seems to have a very good attitude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He doesn't complain that he only got two talents. He just goes to work and does what he can. Yeah. And in the end, he receives the same reward as the first. The master's joy. It's a message to all of us to focus on our duties of state. Focus on doing the small things of our small lives with great love and great faithfulness. And this is a great point. And if we do, we can look forward to sharing the same master's joy along with five talent servants <laughs> like St. John Paul II and St. Teresa of Calcutta. That's very good. Isn't That's that very good? good. Yeah. Yeah. We will and be Al Cresta. That <laughs> no, I'm definitely a, a, a two. Uh, uh, no, I don't think yeah, so. Yeah. so I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm the one-talent servant, but I'm trying to invest it in the bank. Well, I, I tell you, that, that parable is always, in the, the punishment is so severe. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it is meant to, again, it reminds us, Jesus does strike fear into the yeah. heart of people. There's yeah. a certain yeah. appropriate fear when the mm -hmm. master speaks like that, and he, he, we should take that to heart, and that just—that's meant to burn the resentment <laughs> out of that, uh, out of that uh, servant um, who insults the master as well. That was kind of a sly uh, set of words that he, you know, he addressed his master with. I thought that was just. I do. I remember every time I read it, think, well, how rude. Exactly. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine saying that to yeah. my master. No. Yeah. You know. I mean. Uh, you know, I know you were a demanding person. You harvest where you did not plant. Basically, he's, 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 he's telling the master he's a cheater, he's a stealer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, so you, you scare the daylights out of me, buddy. I went off and buried your talent in the ground. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But, it, but it's a word that we all need to, we can't all do everything. we got to share our talents uh, with others. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. What God has given, share. Mm -hmm. Peggy, thanks. Thank you, Al. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. The American Medical Association says informed consent to medical treatment is a fundamental right established in both medical ethics and U.S. law. Patients have the right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so that they can make well-considered decisions about care. When speaking with a patient regarding different procedures and care options, a physician must give accurate information about the diagnosis, treatment, benefits, and risk, and allow the patient to ask questions. Ensure the patient understands the consequences of the treatment alternatives and decide if the patient is capable of making decisions with a sound mind. Document the informed consent conversation and the patient's or their healthcare agent's treatment decision. It is vital to have a healthcare agent who is aware of all your wishes, values, and medical information so that your wishes are respected in the event you are not able to make these decisions at some point. This Medical Moment, brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Dr. Ray Garendi. He's not on drugs. Parents will come into my office 
and describe a litany of trouble about this long. Then they'll say this, I'm giving you the wrong impression. Overall, he's a pretty good kid. How so? Well, he's not on drugs or anything like that. One of the new moral high bars out there, he's not on drugs. You want to raise a child not with the absence of pathology, but with the presence of virtue. She's miserable with me, but she treats everybody else great. Again, not the absence of bad behavior, but the presence of good behavior. He's not on drugs? <laughs> It's a rationale. May provide some comfort. It's not a path to virtue. being with you this uh, first hour, and let me remind you, you can follow up on our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. Uh, books we mentioned on the program, of course, available in the online bookstore there. We usually have follow-up information on the interviews uh, in the Crested Guest Archive, so head on over there. Next hour, uh, we're going to look at moments in church history full of tumult, uh, full of confusion where it looked as though the church was going to the dogs. We're going to see what happened. I'm also going to take some time to remember the astronaut, Apollo 8 astronaut Frank Borman. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Uh, good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Glad you joined me. We're going to take up a topic that uh, I think is especially appropriate for us to do so. We, we've passed through this first exercise in the, quote, synod on synodality. And... Um, People still wondering, what was that all about, all through the month of October? And of course, now there's a year, uh, and we have another one coming out in 2024. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, we're moving towards Eucharistic Revival next July in Indianapolis. Uh, we have Eucharistic con uh, Congress. Um, and I've said before, it's interesting looking at the Catholic Church in America right now, because there's no doubt there's a lot of problems, all right? You also are seeing wonderful signs of renewal. I, I look, at the easiest place to see it is just at the explosion of catechetical materials over the last generation. And you look at those materials and you compare them with what was being published and produced back in the 1960s and 70s. And it is the difference between night and day. Uh, these, these materials are... Uh, rich in spiritual insight. They are biblically grounded. Um, they are strong within the apostolic tradition. They are visually striking. Uh, so, I mean, it's just marvelous what's going on. But at the same time, there's a lot of suspicion, a lot of concern about doctrine. People are actually afraid that the church is going to uh, somehow 
go off the rails uh, and begin doing everything like uh, uh, having same-sex weddings. Uh, and I, I guarantee you that's not going to happen. And I'm always surprised when people think that uh, all it takes is some, you know, cardinal or even a pope uh, in things can be changed like that. That's just not how the church works, you know. But nine times, my guest Steve Weidenkopf claims, nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil in its history. Steve's a church historian. He's written a book called Light from Darkness. And he said, you know, we came out of that, those situations, stronger than we were before. So I thought it'd be good to go back and look at some of those uh, problems in our history and take a look at what God was doing when he was bringing light out of darkness. But first, let's get the headlines. Well, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, November 16th. It's the Feast of St. Gertrude the Great. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Chinese President Xi Jinping says the most dangerous issue when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship is Taiwan. Xi reportedly told President Biden in their meeting in San Francisco yesterday that Beijing seeks peaceful reunification with the self-governed island, but will use force if necessary. Officials say Biden replied that the U.S.'s position has not changed and that the country is determined to maintain peace and stability in the region. Authorities say a pro-Palestinian rally outside the D.C. headquarters of the Democratic National Committee turned violent last night. Around 150 people were outside calling for a ceasefire in the ongoing Israeli-Hamas war when a clash erupted with police, leading to six officers being injured and one person being arrested. Police evacuated the DNC headquarters, including Democratic House lawmakers. The mother of a six-year-old Virginia boy who shot his teacher earlier this year will spend 21 months in prison following her sentencing yesterday. Deja Taylor pleaded guilty in June to federal charges of using drugs while owning a gun and lying about her drug use when buying the gun. The investigation that led to those charges was prompted by the January shooting of an elementary school teacher in Newport News. And the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is coming up next week, and organizers say it's going to feature six new floats. They include a Willy Wonka-inspired chocolate float and also a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles-themed creation. A new Snoopy float will also debut that'll show Woodstock and friends looking out for wild turkeys. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We saw uh, the passing of the Apollo 8 astronaut Frank Borman on November 7th at the age of 95. He was the one who selected the opening passages from Genesis that uh, the crew read during the first, main, uh, first manned uh, mission to orbit the moon. And they concluded the uh, Christmas Eve broadcast by asking God to bless everyone on, quote, the good earth, taken, of course, from the repetition of the word good, as God looked upon his creation over and over, he said, it was good, it was good. And um, about a billion people listened to that Apollo 8 uh, broadcast. The creation story took place in 1968, and according to TV Guide, one out of four 
human beings, turned on TV that night to see Borman and James Lovell, William Andrews with the others, circling about 60 miles above the rocky surface of the moon. Um, they read the first 10 verses of Genesis from the King James Bible, which is, has been the dominant, in English anyways, it's been the dominant translation uh, up until this last uh, two generations. Borman uh, was an Episcopalian, attended church regularly, was actually a lay reader in the Episcopal Church USA, and he'd been looking for something, quote, appropriate uh, to read. Uh, he told Parade Magazine the year after when they were asking him about his choice, he said, you know, I'm not a fundamentalist. I don't believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. I believe in a liberal interpretation of the Bible, and I accept its scriptural message. And that message is clear. God created the earth. Uh, and Borman was like a lot of the astronauts, and we don't hear this as much as I wish we did. They, they not only were uh, realized that they were on the cutting edge of a scientific and technological uh, grand achievement, they also knew they were engaged in a patriotic contest to beat the Soviet Union. But many of them, I, I've never made a survey, but many of them also had knew that something deeply spiritual was going on here. Uh, this is brought out probably best in a book by uh, Kendrick Oliver called To Touch the Face of God, the Sacred, the Profane, and the American Space Program from 1957 to 1975. Johns Hopkins University Press published it. It's a nicely written piece, and Oliver covers a lot of material in it, including the uh, Apollo 8 Genesis reading uh, from uh, 1968. And so um, it wasn't unusual uh, at that time in the U.S. space program to have astronauts who integrated their technological savvy, their, you know, personal ambition, uh, their patriotic uh, sentiments, and also with, with their own uh, sense of spirituality. Some of them were very explicit Christians, um, Bible-believing Christians. Uh, we've had, we also had Catholics there. Uh, but there were, there, there were others that were not nearly as committed uh, to spiritual things. You know, Borman, when he was young, had over, he had to overcome a lot. He had sinus infections, had enlarged adenoids, underwent surgeries before he was five years old. Family moved to Tucson for his health, and he learned to fly in Arizona. He was a star quarterback in high school, uh, you know, went on to uh, West Point and joined the U.S. Air Force, became a fighter pilot, got a master's in aeronautical engineering, returned to West Point in 1957 to teach, and there... This is what got me. There, for the first time, his attention turned to space. What happened? Well, that October, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. This was the first artificial satellite to orbit the Earth. And a month later, the Russians launched Sputnik 2, which was an 1,100-pound spacecraft, uh, you know, with a, a radio, radio transmitters and um, a telemetry system carrying a, a mixed-breed dog from Moscow named Leica. And this communist technological prowess shocked Americans, including Borman. 
and he feared that the United States had fallen behind in the arms race. And, of course, the winner of the arms race would be the one who won the ideological struggle over the future of the, of the world. Uh, he, he quote, let me quote him here. There was a real Cold War going on back then, and it appeared that the Russians had got a big leg up. Uh, to be honest with you, and this is what hit me on this, to be honest with you, I'd never even thought about rockets or space before. When they launched Sputnik, it was a real shock to me. Wow. So he, he left the Air Force and joined NASA. He was assigned to the Gemini 7 uh, group, given the mission to orbit the Earth for 14 days with co-pilot Jim Lovell, so NASA could measure human endurance and run medical tests. Um, work out some of the details, you know, of space flight, like the best ways to package food and, and what, to, what to do with human waste. And in the days before the flight, Borman found himself overwhelmed by the thought that he was going to die in space. He turned to his faith for help. He'd been raised Episcopalian and remained in the church well into adulthood. By his own admission, his Christianity was pretty simple. Um, it was faithful, but simple. He prayed regularly. And in the midst of this anxiety about his he may be dying soon. He committed his wife and children to God. He asked for the strength to focus on the mission. And he said, quote, I didn't want to be a heroic casualty in man's conquest of space. I wanted to be a living, breathing husband and father, end quote. Well, the Gemini 7, uh, you know, program ran into several problems uh, during its two-week mission. The astronauts had to deal with failing fuel cells and thrusters, but the spacecraft did return safely to Earth, uh, and Borman said he realized later that everything he cared about was on the Earth. It wasn't, it wasn't in the, uh, the, the great vast space uh, uh, journeys. Um, you know, he, he was also well aware of the, those who had lost their lives in the U.S. space program. And he, again, you have to think that that's quite possible. Uh, that might be your future. So when he was preparing for the flight in 1968, the Apollo 8 flight, he had to memorize 566 switches, 71 lights, and 40 indicators so that he could locate each of them while blindfolded. And um, NASA, of course, had a public relations problem at the time. They were losing support among the public. So Julian Shear, the uh, deputy public information officer, told Borman that he should probably plan to say something while in orbit. Uh, and the crew was scheduled to broadcast from the moon on Christmas Eve, and they knew they were going to have a large audience. So Borman asked the public relations professionals, what should I say in the broadcast? And he, they kept saying things like, well, something, say something appropriate. Uh, and he, you know, he said, nobody's telling me what to say. Here I have this great opportunity. And then it dawned on him that, yeah, that's, the American government wasn't feeding him propaganda like he thought the Soviet Union would have done. You know, if a communist cosmonaut were the first to reach the moon. But still, even though the American government wasn't feeding him propaganda, he still didn't know what to say. 
And everything he thought of, he was afraid was going to sound trite. So he asked a Jewish friend, um, a fellow by the name of Simon Burgin, uh, for help. Burgin was a former Newsweek editor who'd worked for uh, LBJ. And he turned to another friend who was an official at the Bureau of Budget. And uh, they're all stumped by what to say. And finally, uh, one of the guys asked his wife, Christine Layton, who had been a ballerina and a member of the French Resistance during the Nazi occupation, asked Leighton uh, what she would suggest. And she suggested, hey, just go back to the beginning. Read the creation account from Genesis. The idea was passed back to Borman. He liked it, and he wrote it into the mission plan. <laughs> so, um, you know, on December 24th, as the camera showed the lunar surface passing below a window, you had the three astronauts reading scripture from a piece of paper. Borman went last, closing with verses 9 and 10. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And then he concluded by saying, quote, From the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth, end quote. Years later, uh, he had retired. He was on a ranch in Montana. And when he was interviewed, he actually confessed he didn't like the moon that much. He said sometimes he would look up at it, you know, and try to feel like people seem to think he should, you know. Uh, but when he was up there, he said it looked that desolate. It was bleak, lonely. He had no desire to walk on the surface. And he scoffed at people who were dreaming of moon colonies. The one thing... And this is what I, I again, I think I, I want to um, leave you with. The one thing that moved Borman spiritually was the sight of Earth rising from the lunar horizon. It was, he said, the most beautiful, heart-catching sight of my life, one that sent a torrent of nostalgia, of sheer homesickness surging through me. It was the only thing in space that had any color to it. Everything else was either black or white, but not the earth. And uh, he kind of looked down and said, like God said, it's very good. Looking upon the earth, it's very good. Again, uh, Frank Borman, a story that probably you hadn't heard of before, um, what he went through in choosing, selecting, from the book of Genesis, and also his own uh, spiritual experience of barrenness when he was up in space. The only thing that was colorful and looked good and showed life was Earth. And that's why we call Earth the privileged planet. Uh, there are a unique set of cosmological constant, constants that allow us to have a life-affirming planet. Praise. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. St. Josemaria Escriva says that we are called to light up the pathways of this earth by being sowers of peace and joy. This comes from being aware that we are sons and daughters of God. 
On the road of life, though, we find dangers, but God walks with us every step of our life, pouring out the gifts of His Holy Spirit upon us. Our Lady is our companion, like GPS in our car, connected to the cloud and bringing the latest updates to help us navigate our journey and get out of traffic on the way to the eternal kingdom. We don't want to get into family fights on our way to God's vacation destination, but we should be these sowers of peace and joy. We shouldn't accept substitutes, accept only the authentic identity of being His children, His sons and daughters. Let's grow in happiness and bring peace to those around us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. What does the Tenth Commandment condemn? When the Lord God told us not to covet our neighbor's goods, he denounced envy, avarice, and greed as the root of theft, robbery, and fraud. Greed, the Catholic Catechism tells us, is the desire to amass earthly goods without limit. Avarice arises from a passion for riches and the power that attends to their possession. He who loves money never has money enough, says the Roman Catechism. The Tenth Commandment also requires us to banish envy from our hearts, reminding us that the devil's envy of God brought death into the world. Envy is defined as sadness seeing another's goods, accompanied by the immediate desire to possess those goods. Note, our Lord placed being poor in spirit at the top of the list of his eight Beatitudes. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? stanthonyservices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399.
And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. It's not too uncommon to hear Catholics today look at some of the crises uh, and challenges facing the Church today. Uh, you know, over the last uh, 20 years now, uh, we've had, you know, we've been living in the shadow of the abuse crisis. And, um, you know, certainly this is terrible. There's no, I can't remember the first time I was asked, I was interviewed about what I thought about this abuse crisis in the church. I remember the non-Catholic who was interviewing me, and I said, well, how do you think I feel about it? I think it's terrible. It's it's a wicked thing. Uh, and then we have people who are afraid that we are afraid of the synod on synodality, for instance, believing that somehow... Uh, this is going to open the door to radical changes in church teaching. And uh, just received an email uh, yesterday uh, from a listener who's feeling that way. I think it's good. One of the things that has helped me maintain stability is actually becoming familiar with church history. And I'll tell you, a man who does that with great um, um, wit, intelligence, and insight is Steve Weidenkamp. He is the author of several books. Uh, we're looking today, though, at Light from Darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. Steve, good to have you back here. Uh, good afternoon, Ali. Thanks for having me on the show again. Good to talk to you. Let, let's go to this. You've, you've seen a lot in your studies over the years, um, and I imagine you get asked all the time, uh, are, how, how bad off are we today compared to the past? What do you yeah, say? That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Alan. It's actually the reason why I wrote the book that we're talking about tonight, right? Light from Darkness, uh, my most recent book, is is because of that exact question. I went around, you know, when I teach, when I give presentations to parishes, or just talking with people. Um, that's that's one of the first questions they'll say. They'll actually have said to me that, "Oh, this is this the worst time that we're ever living in church yeah. history?" Yeah. And uh, you know, at first, it, when I got that question, I was I was taken aback because my immediate re- response is because of you know, what I do and teach, and, and I, I have this knowledge. I thought, well, you, know, you got to you, you can't be serious. I mean, <laughs> <Right. times. laughs> there were worse times in church history, but I don't, I don't want to be. Um, you know, I, I don't want to make the person feel ignorant or, or you know, right. uh, have any kind of you know negativity towards them or whatever to criticize them. So I just I kind of ask them, you know, well, why do you think that? And then they give me some some of their rationale or whatever. And then I try to teach them and tell them, you know, well, no, I mean, this is not really the worst time in church history, and here's why. I mean, there were other times that were bad, but it's it's okay to have this sense of you know, geez, we're living in a crisis. Um, you know, there's all these things that I see that are going on in the church that are that are negative, or people doing things in the church more appropriately that are negative. And you know, I I think people are wrestling with how do I how do I cope with that? Right. How do I right. how do I handle that? As as you pointed out, right? And so, as you mentioned, true. I mean, church history is I think the great teacher, or should be the great teacher for us when it comes to these kinds of situations we find ourselves in. And one of the things I highlight in the book, though, is I know it's difficult for people in the modern world to to deal with that, uh, or to, to, I think, you know, go to church history in the first place, or an immediate place, because we live in such an age, in a day and age with technology and social media and everything, where the the present is so present, if you will, right? So our focus is so much on the immediate that we lose a sense of context, Mm -hmm. we lose a sense of perspective. And that's really the reason why I wrote the book, is to help us, to help Catholics 
um, turn to church history and give us that sense of perspective uh, and not just kind of knee-jerk react to things in the church, but to take a step back and recognize not just that things were possibly worse than they were in the, in the past, but even more so, that, I mean, that's, a, that's a kind of a nice little platitude, but even more than that is to, to see, as I try to point out in the book, that God brings forth reform, renewal, and good things yeah. out of dark times in the church's history. Yeah. So. No, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, that's uh, look, we believe God raises the dead for heaven's sake. Uh he can certainly bring uh good out of these times of evil. Take me back to uh the time of Roman persecution. Um you, a lot of times we look back on those days kind of idealize uh heroic, you know, martyrs and must have been an especially, you know, everybody was willing uh, to go to his death, uh, breathing the name of Jesus. But it wasn't that simple, was it? No, it wasn't. And and that's you're exactly. Right. I mean, that's that's the first chapter in the book is is this look of of this crisis known as the lapsi back in church history and during, in the times of the Roman persecution. So. Going back to the period of the Great Persecution in, in the late 3rd, early 4th century under Diocletian, and then the aftermath of all of that, even before that, too, the Church is dealing with this in the 3rd century, even, where you have Christians react different ways, right, to the different persecutions. Um, and you have some who were faithful, who were brought before the magistrates, the Roman magistrates, and who, you know, held on to their faith vigorously and, and you know, were, were condemned to death for their faith. And so we, these are the people, as you mentioned, we, the saints and others that we tend to, St. Ignatius of Antioch, for example, mm-hmm. in the second century, and others that we, that we kind of, um, we remember, obviously, in the liturgy, but also the stories resonate with us, that they met their, their they went to their death, you know, with the name of Jesus on their mouth, if you will. Um, but then there were others, too. There were some that were in, just in prison. There were others who were, um, you know, who, who kind of skirted away. Some some even fled, right? We even have examples of bishops, St. Cyprian initially fled his diocese under, uh, went into the desert and kind of you know, was criticized by many others for doing so, for leaving his flock unattended during the persecution. Mm. Um, next time persecution came, uh, he didn't do that, and he was, he was martyred. But... You know, so, but the real issue here in the early church that that, that um, was a huge crisis was, well, what do we do? So the other people, the other group of people, were people who gave in, who were, who lapsed, yeah. who, you know, the, were told, hey, we want you to offer this pinch of incense to the Roman god, and they went and did so. Uh, or they, they were, if they were wealthy Christians, we have examples of them sending their servants to do so wow. um, in their name, with the thought that, you know, well, I didn't personally, you know, offer <laughs> right. the incense, <laughs> but my servant did for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> trying to skirt the, the moral law that way. Um, and so these people were, no, and then when persecution was ended, these people then wanted to come back into the Church. Uh, and so there was this huge uh, crisis uh, of what to do with these people, right? Uh, and different um, camps developed, really two different camps that developed in the Church over this uh, situation. Do we, there was one camp that said, you know, nope, sorry, I mean, you gave in, you rejected the faith, you rejected Christ, you rejected the Church. Other people went to death, you know, for their faith. You took the easy path and, and gave in. So, no, we're not gonna, you're not welcome back to communion. Um, you're gone forever. Uh, and then another group um, was more merciful and said, well, we understand that, you know, why you may have given in on a human level, fine, sure, but, and if you're truly sorry, truly repentant, then fine, after a period of, of penance, 
um, and the performance of that penance, then you can be welcomed back into, into communion. Right. And thankfully, it was that latter camp that, that was really focused and uh, implemented by the Roman pontiffs that, that carried the water, if you will, in the Church's understanding of how to deal with these people, because it really recognized right Christ, and it recognized mercy and this understanding of forgiveness and of a second chance and of um, over time, then, what developed was this, this greater and better understanding of the pastoral impl- implications of the sacrament of confession, and even more importantly, over the centuries, then it developed as to how confession and how the sacrament was then engaged in, right? So, I mean, it went from, in the early Church, you know, you would confess your sins publicly right. uh, to the bishop, and the bishop would give you a public penance, and you had to stand outside the Church um, from, you know, every week at Mass and ask people, beg people to pray for you while they're at Mass, but you couldn't go in yourself. Oh. Uh, and that could last for a long time, months to years. Wow. Um, which is significantly different than, you know, now where we follow the more Irish custom, which then um, became universal of, you know, auricular individual confession to a priest with absolution granted before even the, the saying of the, or the uh, performance of the penance. So, oh. You know, and that's good. I mean, I think we like it that way, right? Most of us probably don't want to go and confess <laughs> our sins publicly right. in front of our neighbors and everybody in the Church. So, um, But that's just one example of how a crisis very early in the Church's history then produced this great re- re- renewal and reform and a greater understanding and pastoral application of the sacrament of, con- of confession. Yeah, and, and it is amazing that uh, after those persecutions, uh, the we have, you might say, the Constantinian Revolution at that point, where all of a sudden the Church uh, enters into peace uh, and gets the patronage uh, of, you know, the Empire. Uh, so. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the Empire who that was the, you know, the instrument of the Church's persecution yeah. becomes, you know, embraces the faith. And right, and, you know, that wouldn't have happened had there not been the witness of the martyrs and, and you know, the, the difficult time of crisis in the Church. And so, yeah, that follows after that, you know, centuries of, of, you know, uh, patronage and of growth and of expansion and of the spreading of the gospel. Yeah. Um, take, us to, take us to a time when uh, heresy was a problem, where, where people were afraid that uh, the Church was falling into doctrinal error, uh, and heretics or heretical groups seemed to be... Uh, you know, the, the the wave of the future. Yeah, well, there's a time. I mean, in the in the book, one of the chapters I talk about is the you know the well known or infamous Albigensian heresy, mm-hmm. which right. kind of waged in the you know the late 12th, early 13th, and so 13th centuries. And this was you know a, a heresy that um, really took root and flourished uh, and expressed itself in the south of France uh, and. This, this was for a lot of different reasons, both political as well as ecclesial reasons, as to why the heresy uh, tended to—it didn't originate there. It's, it's thought to have originated further in the East, more in the Balkan states, maybe, uh, or the Balkan area of Europe, Eastern Europe. But it really flourished and, and expanded in southern France. And again, a lot of different reasons for that, a lot of it political, um, actual— Actually, but so this heresy, these Albigensians, this is it was they were kind of a new form, if you will, of Manichaeanism and Manichaeans. And, and Manichaeanism was something the Church had dealt with early in her life. You know, in the third and fourth centuries, Saint Augustine was dealing with these people um, during the time that he was alive and bishop in, in North Africa. And so the Manichaeans slash and now Albigensians here later in Church history 
or dualists, uh, simply put. They're people who who believed in, and saw the world in kind of two different groups, right? A spiritual group or spiritual world and a material group and a material world. And they actually believed that there were, if you will, kind of two gods. There was the, a god of goodness, a god of light, a god of all spiritual things. Um, and then there was a god of, of material things uh, uh, who was you know, dark and, and evil. Yeah. And so maybe on the other side of the yep. break, we can we'll pick it up from there. Detail. All right. My guest, uh, Steve Weidenkopf, is the author of Light from Darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. I'm Al Creston. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. In Rule 2 of St. Ignatius of Loyola's teaching on the discernment of spirits, he describes the characteristics of a person whose fundamental spiritual direction of their lives is directed towards God. He writes, In persons who are going on intensely purifying their sins and rising from good to better in the service of God our Lord, St. Ignatius is describing persons who love God intensely and want to live their lives in conformity to His will. These persons frequent the sacrament of reconciliation, sin is being uprooted, and virtue is flourishing. They are striving to grow in holiness and are giving more of their time to the service of the Lord. With attentive care to the spiritual life, the person portrayed in Rule 2 is the image of the growing and maturing Christian. Is there an area in your life that needs to rise from good to better? Grace awaits. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time 
You said I'm sorry. Oh, uh, I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I, I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey, sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying you're a failure? Are you saying I'm wrong? Are you saying, if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault. I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry, very hard to say, very easy on relationships. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Steve Weidenkopf. He's the author of several books. We're looking at we're looking at Light from the Darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. But Steve teaches uh, church history at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, and he's written some other outstanding books, including The Glory of the Crusades and The Real Story of Catholic History. He is the creator of the epic video series on church history. And um, you can follow his work uh, at Twitter, at S. Weidenkopf. We'll have it linked for you at our site. And you can uh, also visit uh, stephenweidenkopf.com to learn more. So we were talking about the uh, Albigensian heresy that's growing up, and uh, they, there's a, this is a new heresy that um, there's the coexisting two mutually opposed principles. You've got good and evil. Good was spiritual. Evil was material. Um and this is get, this is catching on, right? I mean, this is actually affecting uh, people in the church uh, and teachers. And so, uh, Pope Lucius the Third has to do something about it. Yeah. So what happens is, you know, the, as you mentioned, right, the, the heresy is spreading in the south of France in particular, and it's and it's spreading not just so much in terms of people adhering to it and believing it. Um, but it's also, the, the Albigensians were a little bit different in that they actually created a, a kind of counter-church, if you will. I mean, they organized themselves in very similar structure to how the Catholic Church is organized, right? Mm. The dioceses, they had a, a, what, what, something akin to a priesthood, if you will, a, a group of very core believers who, who administered their various oaths and rituals and things known as the perfect, um, and and that so that they set up a kind of a counterexample to some of the poorly behaved and, and malformed clergy in the south of France at the time. And so, yeah, popes before this time, leading up to here as we get into the late 12th, early 13th century, popes have been trying to deal with the, this issue of heresy throughout Christendom, um, and it really came to a head here in the south of, of France. And one of the things that that the Church did was there was a change in legal practice, it really in this in the 12th century. And, it, and in, throughout Europe, um, but even through in the Church, and it was really was a, a reinvigoration or a reuse of, of Roman legal practice, going back to the Roman imperial times. And the switch here was from accusatorial to inquisitorial practice. And so I don't have the time to get into the specifics of it, but in essence what, what the switch was is that inquisitorial practice relies more on the um, you know, accumulation of evidence, of, the, of witnesses, of of actually then having the person accused of a crime confessing to that crime, mm-hmm. and so what what begins here is this initial stage of what's what later becomes known as the institutional inquisitions throughout the church in various areas of Christendom. But at this time, really, is more accurately described as 
these papal inquisitors. So eventually what happens is you have popes um, who appoint these medieval inquisitors at the time here in the 12th century. It's mostly Dominicans, a fairly new order at this time, partly that grew up as a result of what was going on in the south of France, because St. Dominic actually travels through this region. Um, during this time, he sees the impact of the Albigensian heresy. He sees how much the uh, poorly formed clergy is influencing people away from the church, and and how the the perfect of the of the Albigensians seem to be you know living virtuously and providing good example. He sees how the the Catholic priests of the time really are are formed well to be able to articulate the teachings of the church authentically to the people and so he decides to create the order of preachers right whom we know as the dominicans mm-hmm. to be able to counteract and combat this heresy and so they it, the whole time that that you know uh, order is is created you have this legal revolution you have popes more focused on uh heresy and the threat that heresy is not only to the soul obviously of the person who embraces it but also even to society as a whole. And that's one thing that we kind of miss when we talk about heresy back in this time period, is that heresy during the Middle Ages was not only a secular or um, an ecclesial offense, if you will, uh, an offense against the Church, but it was also a secular offense as well, because larger society believed that the heretic was one who was a threat to the unity, to the communal growth, and the communal good of society. So it had to be addressed. And, you know, and again, St. Dominic uh, founds the Order of Preachers, and out of that we get uh, the teacher par excellence, uh, Thomas Aquinas. And, uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's then I was the great, who was, I think she said it was yesterday, right? Yeah, it was, well, it was so. yeah, yeah, yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me jump to another period, uh, because we, we've, we've, we're in the shadow of this um uh, sexual abuse crisis, and I've heard people say th- they can't imagine this kind of thing ever happening before in the church. Um, take us back to the late 11th century and describe for us what we were dealing with. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's true. People, and this it illustrates this particular uh, you know question. Actually, illustrates the whole. The point we were making earlier before the break of, you know, just turning to church history and knowing church history and being able to take solace from church history when, when there are current crises in the church. And that's exactly right. I mean, we've been living through, as you mentioned, the last 20 years or so of this you know, horrible time of in, in the shadow of, of that of the clerical sex abuse crisis. But sadly, it's not the first time in church history that this has actually happened. Um, there was, if, if one can imagine, even a somewhat greater um, crisis in this same area, yeah. if you will, in the 11th century, as you mentioned, the 11th century. And the situation here is there are a multitude of different um, abuses in the Church at the time, but 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 the um, priests not living their promise of celibacy in the 11th century was a significant problem. And it really manifested itself in two different ways. One way was priests either actually having wives, if you will, or living as if they had wives, living openly with women, having having children, or not even necessarily, you know, just having concubines, if you will, as well. And it was pretty rampant throughout most of, of Christendom. Um, but then also, too, there was a significant problem in the Benedictine monasteries of Europe at the time of homosexuality. Um, it was rampant and quite quite pervasive. And so, as does happen in many times in the Church's life, especially during these times of crisis, the Holy Spirit raises up, you know, a, a prophet, if you will, or a holy person to kind of shine the light on these these wicked uh, you know, practices, and, and to call for reform. 
And at this time, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit brought forth St. Peter Damien, a man, a Benedictine monk himself, who was very, very holy and virtuous, who recognized really the principle, the authentic principle of Catholic reform, which is to reform oneself first, to ensure that, you know, individually we're living the best relationship with Jesus that we can. Then once once you focus on, on that, you can then begin to call for, uh, you know, renewal at a much larger level. So Peter focused on being the best monk that he could be, and the best, you know, uh, disciple of Christ that he could be. Then he began to, uh, you know, encourage his fellow monks, his fellow Benedictines, to do the same. And eventually, when he knew that the problem was significant throughout the whole Church, he actually wrote a series of letters to the Pope at the time, Pope St. Leo IX, asking him to intervene and to really, you know, address this problem of, of clerical sexual morality throughout the Church, both in terms of enforcing the promise of celibacy, as well as, uh, you know, rooting out the problem of homosexuality in the monasteries. Eventually, the series of letters that he writes to Pope St. Leo IX are compiled in a book, and in the 14th century, they're given the name, uh, the book is given the title, The Book of Gomorrah, um, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is an apt title, um, but St. Peter didn't give that, that title okay. to his letters itself, but it was something later. And it's a book that you can actually, it was a recent translation that came out a couple of years ago, which is excellent, which you can still, uh, which is in, in print, you can um, you know, buy and read yourself and, and encourage people if they're interested in the subject to do so. But St. Peter asked Pope St. Leo IX to, to investigate this and to deal with it, and Pope St. Leo IX did. I mean, he, he ushered, ushered in uh, one of the most comprehensive papal reform movements in all of Church history. Hmm. Uh, and it wasn't oh. just on this issue. There were many other issues that he was dealing with, and St. Leo IX um, you know, already had a plan of reform and renewal in his mind when he came to the papacy. But so he kind of enfolded St. Peter Damien's you know, clarion call to him, if you will, into that larger reform movement. Um, and how St. Leo IX actually, you know, engaged his reform was he traveled throughout uh, Christendom, which, you know, we are used to popes leaving Rome and going on various apostolic visitations and things. But at the time, in the late 11th century, that was not common at oh, all. Okay. Um, in fact, you know, Pope Leo spent very little time, um, only, you know, uh, very, very little time in this pontificate in Rome itself. He was on the road. And how he did this was he, he held synods. He held, you know, regional and local synods where he went um, to enforce clerical celibacy and to get rid of, you know, all these different ecclesiastical abuses. He even deposed bishops, uh, you know, who weren't uh, with his program and with his reform program and instituted more virtuous men. And he's known for being the first pope who actually created cardinals hmm. from men outside of Rome, uh, across the Alps. So he, he broadened. Uh, his advisors, the cardinals, to men from other areas of Christendom, who were also very much focused, as he was, on virtuous living and on reform of the Church. Yeah. So he's a great man in the Church's history, Leo the Ninth. We've got, we've got about three minutes left, and I'd like you to, uh, as you do in the book, talk about how to respond uh, to crisis in the Church, and how not to, and, and give us some models. Yeah, briefly, I mean, we have, my last chapter of the book is, is, as you mentioned, a historical case study of how to respond and how not to respond uh, to, to living in a time of, of crisis in the Church. And so I take two people, both living at different times in, in Church's life, but also dealing with very significant crises as examples for that. And, and how not to respond is uh, given by the example of Savonarola, who is mm-hmm. a 15th century Dominican who principally was in Florence, um, and the reason why not to follow Savonarola is because ultimately he wrapped himself up in politics. He became more focused on politics than on the spiritual life, and 
his real fundamental problem was that he believed that he had the answer to reform in the church, that his plan was the plan that had to be mm-hmm. followed. And everyone who didn't follow his plan was an enemy of not just him, but of God. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he was full of a little bit of hubris. Uh, if you, you know, uh, and then the other example is St. Catherine of Siena, a woman who lived in a time of great crisis in the church. The popes are living in the south of Avignon. There's this great problem of absenteeism. Rome is dilapidated. There's significant issues. And she firmly and forcefully called for the church to be reformed, called for the Pope to move back to Rome, even went to Avignon herself herself to bring him back to, to Rome. Um, but when you look at the life of St. Catherine and how she dealt with these issues, she always had at heart that it was Jesus who was in charge, right? That she never wavered from her understanding that she is merely just his instrument. Yeah. Uh, and then it wasn't her plan that had to be followed it's just people had to listen to him, and it was her job to point people to him. So it wasn't about her, as it was in the case of Savonarola, it was about Christ. And that's how we have to respond. You know, we, we can be disaffected and under, uh, upset um, about all the things that are going on, or various things that are going on in the world, or in the Church, or what have you, but at the end of the day, what matters most is our relationship with Christ, and how effectively we image forth his likeness yeah. in the world as his disciples in, in, you know, in union with our, our baptismal promises. Yeah, yeah, no, well said. You actually have a quote from Pope Francis here from Amoris Laetitia, which I love. Uh, the lack of historical memory is a serious shortcoming in our society. A mentality that can only say, then was then, now is now, is ultimately immature. Knowing and judging past events is the only way to build a meaningful future. Memory is necessary for growth. <laughs> I love it because I think we're victims of chronic historical amnesia these days. So, and uh, very true. Yeah. yeah, Steve, thanks so much. Uh, you're a great help and a great blessing uh, to the church, especially at a time where so many people are deeply suspicious and deeply fearful of the future. So, thanks so much. Absolutely, Al. Thanks again for having me back on the show. Appreciate it, Steve Weidenkopf. Again, uh, all the work that he's done, uh, I recommend to you. Um, his book, The Glory of the Crusades, outstanding. And then he's got the series, the epic video series on church history. Uh, today we were talking about light from darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. And this is, again, I keep coming back to this. This enables you to stand firm in tough times. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. I tell oftentimes an experience that I had at Divine Child when I was a young priest, one year ordained, first time I ever really saw the power of the Blessed Sacrament. 
And we simply exposed the Blessed Sacrament at the end of Mass one night. I encouraged people. I said, you know what? We've been in the habit of praying over people after Mass. I said, we're not going to do that this week. I'm just going to invite people to come on up and pray if they want to pray. And I put the Blessed Sacrament on the altar. I kneeled down. As I kneeled down, the church is in the sanctuary. The whole church. And as I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at the people there, and I'm looking at Jesus under the appearance of bread there, I saw the Lord standing on the altar. And he's just standing there looking out at all the people. And then at a certain point, he turned towards me, and he just bowed. And he says, don't you see how easy this is? You don't have to do anything. You just have to put me out. You put me out, and I will work. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Earlier today, my friend Larry Denninger dropped by and uh, referred to uh, a quote from Hilaire Belloc, uh, the... the, uh, early 20th century apologist and writer, literary figure. And it's especially appropriate, even if it has a little bit of a sharp edge to it. Quote, The Catholic Church is an institution I am bound to hold divine. But for unbelievers, a proof of its divinity might be found in the fact that no merely human institution conducted with such knavish imbecility would have lasted a fortnight. End quote. And I'll tell you, sometimes you do feel this way, looking over moments in church history and sometimes moments in our own history. But this is why we always have to remember, Jesus doesn't, as the head of the body, doesn't allow himself to get decapitated from the body. He still governs. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.